You are listening to a Yodakin podcast. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to yet another edition of the Yodakin podcast. Um and we are all in lockdown of course across the world, certainly here in India. Uh, and here in new delhi uh, more particularly and we are today in conversation with our lovely author nupur dhingra paiva hi nupur hi arpita <laughs> nupur dhingra paiva who's author of our book uh, 2018 book late 2018 early 2019 book love and rage the inner worlds of children Nupur is a, a chartered clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Uh, she is visiting faculty at Ambedkar University in Delhi and she also runs a center for child and adolescent mental health called Family Tree here in Delhi. Um so how was lockdown treating you Nupur? Actually Arpita it's treating me very well. I'm very really? yes I'm very um, fortunate to not have my life disrupted too much and um, actually work has to continue so all our clients have moved online um and um I just feel privileged and looked after that I don't have to worry about food and safety and that actually right. being home is comfortable rather than uh, disruptive yes yes that goes for so many of us who are truly fortunate in these times when there's so many hundreds of thousands mm. uh, of homeless and underprivileged and informal workers and migrants out on the streets or sleeping in shelters away from their families it really boggles the mind and uh, what can you say it's like to different worlds isn't it it is and uh, we're finding that i mean the news coming in from the west is that actually their divisions are also looking a bit like this it's much more racial and uh, are that actually the impact of the disease and the lockdown is going to be quite different right on different um Yeah I mean um you know to begin with the whole uh, uh, sort of new normal of using the term social distancing and how a lot of people uh, keep pointing out from time to time that it's better to say physical distancing and social solidarity uh because unless we internalize that um that uh, attitude or that uh sensibility we're really not going to find the compassion within ourselves to help those who are less fortunate than ourselves in these times actually this is the first time i'm hearing about this from you and i think it is uh, really apt yeah because uh, i just recently wrote a piece for um white swan foundation which is basically about we are only going to get through this by a sense of collective responsibility not apathy and there's something about distancing that actually increases the possibility of apathy right yeah that that word distancing i know it's become i mean uh you know it is all over it's become as i said the new normal uh but it is such a troubling word isn't it and once we come out of lockdown 
one saw the hard decisions of everyday life begin to be made again in a situation where so much is uncertain yet and yet there'll be the pressure then to get back to work i mm-hmm. wonder what it's going to do i wonder what what it's going to do to to the multitudes who really have nothing to fall back on yeah the lack of certainty is really very scary it's anxiety provoking and actually things are not going to go back to how they used to be we'll have to be looking at some new configuration of how the chips will fall yeah i was wondering um, also and of course you would be the right person to help me answer this question a little or answer this question for me and for our listeners which is um what what does what what does it mean for children and adolescents when we talk about things like the new normal being social distancing and when we talk about post lockdown things are never going to be the same again i mean right now in lockdown how are they receiving and processing all of this um and and also what is it that one needs to keep in mind as caregivers to children and adolescents about what is going through their minds right now well i'm glad you've asked that because more than i don't know maybe it's because i don't have my ear to the ground enough uh, but the only narrative i'm hearing about children is is about school and about online classes and not much else so i'm glad you've asked this question children are a bit invisible in this entire um story because while they are at the receiving end of the impact of everything uh because they are not uh, agentic they kind mm-hmm. of get missed out so the impact of children in lockdown i think that it's really uh it depends on a lot of different things the one thing is um their developmental stage so the younger ones are more uh, in their own fantasies in their minds right and in their own heads and uh, from what i'm gathering not that perturbed um if home is a safe place and home is a place where uh, the parents are more or less available to them then they are actually quite all right uh, they are what i'm hearing and what i'm getting to see and understand is that their younger ones say 6 7 8 and below are, mm. are playing and uh, if we were to watch their play carefully then the themes there are emerging um about them understand what sense they are trying to make of lockdown they're not allowed to go out they're not going to the park they're not going to school they're not going to meet friends um a four year old i know has created a bunker for himself in the living room and uh-huh. uh, with uh, sheets and furniture and he's calling it being in lockdown and um is um, and even within the his uh, bunker things are not supposed to touch each other right and that's the four year old's concrete installation to understand uh, to make sense of what's going on so actually he's not confused at all he's pretty clear 
Um, so yesterday, my eight-year-old made herself a, bunk- uh, a bunker as well behind the sofa and mm-hmm. said, I'm going to be in lockdown in here. And had it kitted out really comfortably with um, a light and books and games and uh, and said, I'll come out basically to go to the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that the slightly older ones who are, say, maybe 10 and uh, above are going to struggle a bit more because that age group is a lot about doing. So developmentally, their task is about learning by doing. So with with no sport, with no physical activity outdoors and uh, no school and no classes or whatever, that, that part of their mind is really, which is what is really alive at this stage is kind Mm -hmm. of in, uh, in this moratorium, which they find really troubling. So it's actually going to be that age group that will be like uh, bored and uh, wandering about looking uh, quite like zombies. Adolescents are going to struggle because their whole life blood really depends on their peers. So luckily, this um, uh, generation has become accustomed to virtual friendships. And um, they've had friends across countries and across boundaries and time and things like that. So, I mean, time, yeah, well, maybe even literally time, but certainly time zones. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that is they can kind of make up for it. But uh, the adolescents are really going to have it hard because the physical proximity of their peers is really what juices them up. And they don't have that right now. Right. Um, It's also a time of great anxiety anyway, isn't it? When you're an adolescent. Um, I mean, how does this global anxiety exacerbate that? Well, I can only speak from the few adolescents who I am seeing uh, as clients where uh, the things that exacerbate it, unfortunately, are the difficult relationships at home. Mm -hmm. So if the family relationships are more or less stable, then that really provides a safety net or a buffer um, that can be supportive. But uh, families where the relationships are under pressure, where uh, there's a, I mean, it's dysfunctional or there's a lot of aggression, um, then those young people are the ones who are really having it hard. Because now they are at home in those relationships with very little um, respite. And of course, there are many, many, many such households where um, children are unhappy and uh, and they they perhaps look forward to um, going to school every day or going off to the neighborhood park to meet their friends uh, as an escape from that unhappiness within the household. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. And so being at home with loving parents is a blessing and being at home with family who have a lot of uh, marital difficulties of their own or emotional struggles of their own and uh, have a hard time keeping their own emotions regulated that's extremely difficult right and is going Um, to unfortunately have long-term impact 
Right. So that's another thing that will be that will have to be taken on board by psychotherapists such as yourself after after the lockdown is over. Well, uh, if we are able to reach these people or these people, these families are able to reach us, then that's that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that it's usually not recognized and uh, just remains under the carpet because uh, issues of uh, economic uh, stability are going to foreshadow it. Right. Mm. Um, you did start by saying that what you are listening to mostly are narratives of online learning. Um, yes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. I'm asking not just for the, um, not because we're doing a podcast on this children in lockdown and about your expertise being the author of your book and being um, the professional that you are, but also because I have uh, two children, uh, one who's 15 and one who's eight, and they're both right now sort of getting used to the idea of online learning. And of course, I can see clear differences between the way the two of them are responding to it and, and receiving it. Um, what, how seriously do we take this? Is this obviously it is something we've fallen back on in a in a in a difficult situation? How seriously can we really take this? Well, uh, that is a good question. Um, see, there there are there's both sides to it, really. I mean, on the one hand, the online classes they provide routine, they provide a connection to the stuff that was happening in school up to three weeks ago and will continue to happen in school. Well, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks hence. Um, so it is important that uh, this, uh, that the, the online class uh, continues to make that bridge. Um, at the same time, I mean, I find, I mean, I have two children as well who are responding uh, to their online classes in different days. Mm -hmm. um, but they're um, sometimes they're quite relieved about the absence of the physical teacher actually <laughs> they don't mind the content right? Uh, mostly and uh, are quite okay to make their parent the primary teacher and their class teacher the, the, the part time teacher right and um, so for that kind of child this is good news Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of child is really using this as an opportunity to clarify some concepts, you know, to really understand what the hell fractions are all about or what decimals are all about or stuff that they've never really understood. Uh, I'm really also hearing about how, you know, I really don't like that teacher. And when she shouts, I, it scares me and it makes my tummy wriggle. And there is some amount of relief about the classes going online. Um, it's also we need to keep in mind that we need not be too obsessed about giving children things to do. Hmm. Um, we seem to think that, oh, well, that doing is going to kind of save us. Right. You know, uh, mainly from the anxiety of uh, being in lockdown and uh, having this threat around us. But um, not having something to do can also be pretty valuable. So I'd say that actually the online system of uh, two, or two hours of class 
and the rest of the time to live the day is actually pretty balanced. I wish school was more like that. Yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you. I mean, what can teachers in schools, that is, if they are even listening to what's happening and if they're even paying attention and if they're even thinking about it, what can they really learn from this state of affairs? That actually maybe two hours of lessons is sufficient in the day and the rest of the time you can play or make clay things or do art or, um, you know, activities which are, as you go into senior classes, become less, I mean, they dip in priority. And that actually children have a certain amount of bandwidth, we all do, uh, in terms of being able to take in material. And obviously that bandwidth is different for different children. It's different in different ages, it's different for different children, it's affected entirely by emotional state. Um, and what enlivens children is uh, being able to play, being able to express themselves, being heard. So a lot more class teacher or teacher and student interaction time rather than instruction giving time. These right. kind of things would be useful take home. Yeah, gosh, I hope some school principals listen to this podcast so that, you know, they actually apply some of this learning of this time uh, to uh, schooling going forward, because um, mm -hmm. these are really, really valuable insights, which a completely sort of default situation is kind of making available to us. And um, if we don't learn from it, how sad that would be. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think there's quite, there's a lot to learn about uh, the state of our relationships from this uh, situation that we're in currently. I'm finding that uh, it's really sieved out um, in terms of the young people I'm working with on continue to work with online. It's really sieved out the ones who have uh, motivation, commitment, desire to change their lives and the ones who are really yeah. struggling. How interesting. It's almost like wartime sort of, uh, you know, uh, things coming to the, to the fore. Yeah. 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 In, in psychotherapy, we have this concept of uh, a crisis being a good thing where, because How? it really gives you an opportunity to make a change. Right. And you uh, can quite easily see the ones who have internal resources um, that makes it possible for them to coalesce those resources around this crisis moment and make something new out of it. And the ones who slide back. So it is really a watershed kind of moment. Yeah. Gosh, uh, that's so much to think about. The mind boggles, really. Um, and I think there's so much that I was, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're talking that there's so much that I think you know, child psychotherapists like yourself have been trying to say during peacetime. <laughs> I could. I was, time versus peacetime. Yeah. yeah. I find myself using that analogy. Yeah. Um, and, and all of it is now playing out during wartime, so-called. 
and perhaps now they'll listen to you perhaps now they'll pay greater attention to you both parents as well as teachers and administrators and caregivers about how children learn and about well-being um and children and children children's mental health i certainly hope so um for for the younger children it's pretty simple i mean my 8 year old said to me today that you know i was actually pretty excited about this prospect of lockdown because it meant that i'd have more of you oh nice yeah oh. she said it exactly in this way oh. and then she said but you know you're actually working quite a lot and you're worrying about other people's lives so basically mm. i got told off mm. and um, and i asked her well how would you like it and she said well you can work a bit and then the rest of the time another time you can maybe say i'm not going to work and i'm going to come and watch a film with you mm. so uh, this is the 8 year old telling me what she would like. so children really just want closeness with their parents children want to be uh, given air time and uh, have physical loving proximity to their parents right um, that pretty much solves most problems right and i was also thinking that in a sense it gives children an opportunity to see what their parents do at work or how they work and yeah that must be a good thing for children i think it certainly could be yeah and uh, it uh, not everybody's work is something that they can explain to their children but i mean yeah there are people's adults uh, work i do not understand myself yeah. and uh, and it would be a real uh, way of bonding in their relationship to be able to communicate about these things right um so is this all going to go into a new book oh dear no this is well i don't know it might there are two books in my head but they're only in my head at the moment tell us tell tell all of us about these two books uh so one of it comes out of my role as visiting faculty at ambedkar university where i teach a course on what we learn from watching babies so right. it's called uh, observation skills as in the course is called observation skills uh but the task is um about just watching a baby in a family a new baby in a family and um, how parents and babies interact and how babies grow right um and the book is going to be about what we've learned from that what just watching babies teaches us about relationships about families about anxieties about being human and vulnerable and small um and how we um, and how the through the observers writings we can uh, f- discover how when we're in contact with vulnerable it mm-hmm. it touches that small vulnerable person inside of each of us right so that's that's also sort of harking back to your earlier book which i remember we always talked about it in terms of it's not just for people who are giving care to children or who are parenting or who are teaching but also for adults who have unfinished business or unresolved baggage from the time when they were children which is all of us yes yeah so. right and the other book the other book is a little further away um because i have to line them up in in 
yeah. process mm-hmm. um, is about fathers and daughters and the relationship between fathers and daughters that we get to see through our clinical work um, and also through the program we run on the development of girls, which is called the Art of Sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so our experiences of fathers and daughters and their relationship, narratives, um, both from the child's end as well as the father's end. What is the Art of Sport? The Art of Sport is a program we put together which is for girls only and it's about helping girls to find their voice but rooting mm-hmm. it through um, their experience of agency and strength and capacity in from their bodies. So really sort of the body-mind connection but moving body first. So if you can find yourself as uh, strong physically that actually strengthens you emotionally. Right. And uh, do you also do um, sort of sessions here with fathers and their daughters or? Well, the focus is very much daughter first, um, Mm -hmm. but we regularly invite uh, fathers to join in. And Mm -hmm. um, so building the father and daughter relationship is a pretty central part of what the art of sport does. Yes. This comes out a lot from your earlier work and your earlier book as well, isn't it? There's a lot in the earlier book about the role of fathers in bringing up children and how particularly in our society, we tend to give the father the back seat and how that's a real problem. Yes, that's true. Um, the working with fathers is something that or the father's involvement in the child's internal world and external world is something that... Um, we tend to minimize. Um, there are lots of social, socially constructed reasons for that, which I won't mm-hmm. get into right now. Um, but the bottom line is that children love being with their dads because right. dads are different from moms. Yeah. And they have something valuable to bring to their relationship as well. Like they're just the difference is exciting. So that, that's the keyword in a sense, isn't it? It's the idea of difference. It's, it's where the child first learns to appreciate the idea of difference, diversity, the fact that two things are not the same. And yet, love each other and can be together. Right. Which I mean, is the, so important, which is today, such an important lesson for our times. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we can say this again and again. Um, and it still will be undersaid. But the family is where we learn how to live in groups. So yeah. the, the, uh, the family being the first group where your parents, your mother and your father, they are not clones of each other. Right. They, in fact, uh, epitomize and exemplify the fact that there are there is difference. In the family, there is difference. And uh, the attempt, unfortunately, is to kind of homogenize it, to have one mind, one view, one name, one way of uh, being, thinking, living. Mm. Um, So the more dialogue and difference we can bring into our family lives, that I can differentiate from you, but continue to be connected and loving. So you would say arguments could actually have a beneficial sort of, uh, result in a child's mind. Arguments are wonderful yeah. things yeah. because it's when I 
when I, that's how I discover that I am not you. That is how you discover that I am not you. But I can still love you. I don't, you don't have to be me in order for me to love you. Right. Which is do I love you so for you or do I love you because you uh, sound like me, look like me, behave like me, follow me, comply with what I have to say? In which case, I don't love you. I just love a version of myself. <laughs> yes. My gosh, this is just, this is everything that every child should be growing up with in our times, of course. Clearly, they're not growing up with, with enough of it, with enough of this narrative. Uh, yeah, because as a society, we, we really do love compliance. Um, we like telling other people what to do. And uh, the better somebody follows instructions, the more we appreciate that. So yeah. we create instruction following people. And here, yeah. And it starts in childhood. Um, and what happens with fathers and sons? We talked about fathers and daughters, but um, how important would you say, um, you know, I mean... No, it, it, goes to, it goes without saying that fathers and sons are uh, extremely important. And uh, it's, um, I think, a little less on my writing uh, table because it's a little more obvious. Um, Fathers uh, gravitate towards their sons for various reasons mm -hmm. and their sons gravitate towards their fathers and uh, that is socially uh, encouraged. So mm -hmm. uh, in a way it is easier to work with fathers and sons because uh, there's, it's right there. It's the elephant in the room and it's not even an invisible elephant. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that the book is about fathers and daughters or will be someday is because it's also the elephant in the room, but the one who's completely invisible. You just keep bumping into it, but not knowing what you're bumping into. Uh, but as far as sons go, they, very, they really need their fathers around as, uh, as figures to look up to, to know what it means to be an effective man in this world. So fathers have a huge responsibility, really, because a mother can't do that. I'm going to get uh, shoes thrown at me for this one. But <laughs> it's very difficult to be a woman um, and also help a young man turn into a man. Um, right. Yeah, it, it's, it's complicated having to wear two different size shoes and still walk in... So it's going to create a lot of emotional turmoil in that relationship between that parent and child. And also the whole point of a positive male figure, a sensitive male figure, what that would mean in, uh, for, a, for a young boy. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, about, what year are we in? We're in 2020. Um, almost 20 years mm -hmm. ago, there was some work I was doing on fathers and children and it was uh, something I read in my uh, literature review so, that having a, a caring loving father um, 
um, is what is valuable, but having uh, a damaging father is worse than having no father. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so um, and, uh, that that makes me think of um, of a single parent. Um, yes. What what does a single parent? Given that this is important, given that this kind of co-sharing of responsibilities when your parents is important, given that you want to be able to introduce your child to this idea of diversity and difference um, and to be able to live harmoniously with that difference, what does a single parent do? Well, firstly, let's face it that there are many uh, women who are single parents, despite having a partner or a husband or uh, in the same household. <laughs> yeah, they're so, in absentia. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is in fact what we find uh, clinically very often, which is that for all practical purposes and emotional purposes, emotionally relevant purposes, the father is invisible. Right. And uh, that creates... Um, that, that creates a different sets of problems. So, mm -hmm. and then there are equally um, women who would like to be the only parent for the child, even though the real life father is right there, desperate uh, to be involved. Mm. So there are all right. kinds of combinations. Right. Um, coming to the more obvious one, where there is a woman who is a parent because the quality of the ring that the mm -hmm. would be lacking, um, or that the conflict in the in that combination of humans was too much, mm -hmm. that to be good for anybody, that that's a really that's very difficult uh, because from, from the child we are wired. The child is wired to need more than one person. So that one person is sufficient is, is, a, is a fantasy. Right. And it's a very painful one because it kind of keeps us trapped in uh, that whole thing about uh, I wish I was enough, I'm enough, and then working too hard because uh, it's not humanly possible. So then does one go one's try and... Uh, Yes, that's when one strive, yeah, absolutely. And uh, has home to people for different roles because a child needs the parent figure to move to when you're fed up of one. Yeah. Which is going to happen, which is inevitable. Right. Yeah. And it's, when I, I say parent figure, it means somebody who keeps you in mind, thinks about you, and is able to uh, yeah, hold, hold you in mind as somebody who belongs to them, who's nurturing they are involved in. Right. And that role can be played by pretty much uh, anyone. Mm. Grandparents, aunts, uncles. Friends? Uh, I, yeah, well, uh, yes, uh, but... Not in a part-time way. I mean, you know, as you, nobody can be a part-time parent figure. Once you are a parent figure, you have the child on your mind all the time. Right. 
So I find that's the difference. So actually, the the Didi at home is a very significant parent figure. Yes, I have a Didi at home, and of course, that is like a whole different conversation of how we we expect our domestic help or our nannies to step in and do all the work with the children, and then, but what? <laughs> What yes, and then forget that they are deeply relevant attachment figures for the child. Yeah, that is a whole different podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, and however you want it, we should plan that. But thank you. I think we're a little bit out of time, and it's been fabulous talking to you as always, Nupur. Um, uh, thank you very much, Arpita. Yes, Nupur's book uh, remains in print. It's called Love and Rage, The Inner Worlds of Children. It is still, I can wager, as the publisher of the book, I can wager it is still the only book in India, perhaps even in South Asia, which is not about parenting. It's about our children's inner worlds. And as a caregiver for a child, as a parent, as a teacher, as an administrator of a school, um, you at, as a mental health practitioner, counselor, or as we said earlier, as someone who might have unresolved baggage from their own childhood, this book is really a must read. And it's also, um, what's what's a bonus is the fact that Nupur is also an, an accomplished writer. And Nupur, we're really waiting for the next book, of course, as, a, as your editor and publisher, I'm going to finish the broadcast and then start badgering you about the scheduling again. <laughs> as you must, as you must. Yes, but we'll take that offline. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm also going to take this opportunity to thank Tanya Singh, our uh, silent recorder and producer who is going to work her magic and edit this uh, conversation in sh into shape and put it online for all our listeners very soon. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.